The following audio is from our sermon series titled, The Whole Story, Genesis to Revelation. For more information about Harvest City Church, please visit our website at harvest.city. How are we doing, Harvest City? Hey, my name is Scott. Y'all are used to that. Uh, man, I really wish that I could be here with y'all this morning. Uh, I got bit hard by the Rona this week, and I don't know why any of y'all uh, take this joint lightly and think that, uh, man, let's just let this thing flow because it bit me hard. But uh, that said, uh, man, I really wanted to get into the Word of God with y'all still because this series has been so good for me. We're doing this, the whole story series from Genesis to Revelation, and this morning we're going to spend our time together in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. For those of you who are tracking with uh, one of our Bible reading plans or read through the Bible in a year plan, you're probably way ahead of us, but I assure you, we will catch up eventually. We're just hitting a lot of these early stories because they're so foundational. You see, the story of Noah and the ark, which we're going to be in this morning, is one of the most familiar stories in all of Scripture. Think about it. It's probably one of the, mo- one of the first stories that you remember hearing when you were a kid. But you know what happens when you become familiar with something, right? We lose our sense of awe and wonder around that thing. This can happen in our relationship with our spouse. Sometimes we become too familiar and we take them for granted and we don't treat them the way that we once did. This can happen in our relationship with God. We seemingly come too familiar with our Bibles and we let it float away from us and we don't dive into the scriptures to know him more the way that we used to. And this has certainly happened for many of us with this specific story about Noah and the ark. You see, somehow in becoming so familiar, instead of remembering the story being about God blotting out sin from the face of the earth, we remember this being a story about animals walking two by two into a really large boat. Instead of remembering this story being a story about a man named Noah who's in the hall of faith, We remember this story being about a boat ride with all the animals you want to see at the zoo and none of the other animals. Harvest City, we've become so familiar with this story that we have made what could be one of the most difficult stories to grapple with in the entire Old Testament into toys and paintings that you put on the wall in your baby's nursery. The truth is, when we come to this section of scripture in which Noah plays a supporting role, we should be asking ourselves a number of questions, both philosophical and day-to-day arc kind of questions. You see, when we come to this story, we need to be asking questions like, how could a loving God flood the entire earth? And when it says that God flooded the whole earth, like did he flood the whole earth or did he just flood the known earth at the time? You see, these are the kind of questions that people have been pressing into for a long time. And then there's those day-to-day, maybe more light-hearted questions around uh, Noah's ark, right? Like, so was it Noah and his family's full-time job just to feed those animals and scoop the poop? I mean, can you imagine how much dump there was from 35,000 animals in stalls on a boat? Like three levels worth of this boat filled with dung from different kinds of animals. 
I wonder, did they have a wheelbarrow yet? Because otherwise, how in the heck are they getting that stuff out of there? Did they just have some filtration system to like dump it out into the ocean? Or did they grow potatoes in it like they did in that movie Martian, right? Like, uh, is that part of how they made produce throughout the time uh, on the boat? Or what about the question of how all those animals got in the boat in the first place? I know that Precious Moments wants us to think that it was such a cute little thing and they all came through the forest marching two by two up into the boat. But when I saw that movie Noah with uh, Hermione Granger in it and Russell Crowe, right? Uh, here's the deal. Those animals were kind of scary coming up out of there. There's like a pile of snakes like swarming on top of each other up into that boat. It was like a horror movie. So I want to know how did that actually happen. And the question almost all of us have probably thought about at some point in time is, Noah, why in the heck did you not just leave certain animals behind? Pick your poison, right? For me, it would have been snakes. I'd have been like, man, after that joint in the garden, uh, we're just leaving them out. No snakes are getting in this boat. For some people, it's like cats, right? Like I've been convinced that there's something wrong with cats for a long time. Why didn't we just leave cats out why didn't we just flood them out and man then we'd be done with that problem I don't know what that animal is for you but I'm sure at some point in time maybe it's mosquitoes right uh, you've thought about questions like this you see these are pretty darn good questions if you ask me but they're not the main point of Genesis 6 to 9 and as a result they're not going to be the main point of my sermon either you see, the story about God flooding the earth is about God's rebooting of creation after it had gone terribly wrong. Now, I don't have a problem. Uh, I don't have this problem nearly as often since I switched to an Apple computer. Uh, but it used to be that I found myself pushing Control-Alt-Delete all the time. You see, it, it felt like rebooting the computer seemed to be the only way to get things to work the way they were supposed to on non-Apple products. I apologize for those of you still using those kind of products. You see, if my computer was lagging, Control-Alt-Delete. Uh, if my uh, computer froze up, Control-Alt-Delete. Rebooting the computer seemed to be the only way to get things working the way that they were supposed to in the first place. Harvest City, the flood was God's reboot of creation. But the crazy thing is, it was a failed reboot. It was not a failure because God failed, but because God was trying to demonstrate something to us. This morning, I think God wants each one of us to hear, because rebooting the world through a flood was not the final answer, we must put our faith in the true and better Noah for hope at the final judgment. My sermon title for this morning is Failed Reboot. If you want to get the Bibles out from underneath of your chairs, uh, we're going to be in Genesis 6 to 9 this morning, and uh, I'm just going to read selections from that. Otherwise, we'll be reading for a while. You see, uh, we value the Bible so much here at our church that at, in the first week of January, when I preached through Psalm 119 in our missional family, we read the whole thing together out loud, and it took something like 17 minutes. So rather than reading all of Genesis 6 to 9 today, I'll be grabbing these excerpts, but it's not because we don't value it a ton. Here we go. We'll start in Genesis 6, 5 to 8. I apologize, I don't have my Bible up here because I did not want to get the Rona in my actual Bible, so I'm going to be reading it off of the iPad this morning. 
Here we go. Genesis 6, 5 to 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of of the Lord. Switch to chapter 8, Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 to 21. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And then in Genesis 9, 12 to 15, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Church, because rebooting the world through a flood was not the final answer, we must put our faith in the true and better Noah for hope at the final judgment. There's four words that we're going to use to guide through this passage today, Harvest City. We're going to use uh, grieved, favor, reboot, and failure. Let's pray with me, and then we'll get into that. God, I pray that you would lead us and guide us in your word today. Uh, I take comfort in the fact that your word says that when we are weak, then you are strong because my uh, physical body is plenty weak, and I know that I heard more clearly through you, it felt like. Yesterday, I was dialed in because of the weakness of my flesh. And so I pray that God today, even in preaching, that you'd help us to hear directly from you uh, due to my weakness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. Genesis 6, 5 to 7, right? We already read this once. Let's read it again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. There's that word, grieved. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. I don't know about y'all, but my first thought after reading verse 5 is, woof. Nothing about that sounds good. Every intention of the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually. Think about how much a story of judgment like the flood bothers you and then multiply that exponentially somehow and you may start to realize how much sin bothers God. You see, the scriptures use this phrase that God was grieved to his heart to show us that God is literally heartbroken over what has become of creation. In Isaiah 54, 6, this word grieved is used to describe a wife who married young only to be deserted by her husband. I don't know about y'all, but I have a friend who was deserted on his wedding day. 
on his very wedding day, his fiance bailed on him. And I would guess that that hollow, sick feeling that my friend had that day is something like how God feels about our sin. You see, sin, like a disease, had consumed the human race, Scripture says. Their thoughts were only evil continually. So God decided to stop it. And he was going to do that by sending a flood to cleanse the earth of sin. So how is it that a loving God could flood the earth like this, you might ask? Well, if you've ever had a family member that has cancer, then you probably have an understanding of how God could do something like this. If someone you love has cancer, then you take radical measures like chemotherapy and radiation to cleanse them from their cancer. This is just what you do. This is what God did with his creation. The Hebrew here is actually incredibly unique. The word used to describe human wickedness in verses 12 to 13 is something like mash heat. They are destroyers, it means. It's the same word used to describe what God did to the human race. Literally, the text says God mash heats the mash heaters. He destroyed the destroyers. You see, many of us have a difficult time with judgment like this because we have what I would call an oversimplified view of God. And when we have an oversimplified view of God, we can't even begin to grasp stories like this. Think about this with me. Some of us absolutely hate it when people around us give seemingly simple answers to complex questions, right? It's something that people in Iowa City get incredibly frustrated with. Well, how much more is this probably true of us when we try to make judgments of the infinite God who created all things? My guess is that he is much more complex than any of us think, and I'm thankful for that. I think we should all be thankful for that. One way I think this is true is that God's love has more depth to it than the way you think about love if you think love is letting people off the hook and overlooking their sin. You see, one reason why is because of God's attributes. God is 100% love at the same time as he is 100% justice, and he is fully gracious at the same time as he is a God of wrath and jealousy for his glory. You see, we can't even understand what it means to be all of those things at the same time in our finite minds. God is much more complex than what we make him out to be when we're making judgments like this. And another reason why is because of God's glory. God is the only being in all of creation that it's actually right for him to be jealous for his own glory. You see, for you and me to put ourselves first is completely selfish because that's not our place in the created order. But God is the creator and and sustainer of all things, and it is right for him to live for his own glory. And so when sin spits in the face of his glory, when sin 
mars his glory. It is right for God to do something about it. And it can actually be loving at the same time. You see, God was heartbroken. He was grieved over sin. And this is why the flood came about. The second word that we're going to look at this morning is this word favor. You see, if we read that uh, one verse farther in Genesis 6, we see verse 8. After uh, sin becoming something that was, they were only evil continually, then the next verse says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What was it that was special about Noah, you might ask? How come he was the one that found favor with the Lord? Well, to be honest, nothing really. Verse 9 tells us that he was a righteous man, but that does not mean that he didn't have sin in his heart. And so, as you'll see this morning, he had plenty of sin in his heart. We'll get to that story in a little bit. But he is part of the same human race that has Adam as our representative head. Just like Adam ate the fruit, we know that, uh, that Noah is a man who has sinned. But we also see Noah in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. It says this about him in Hebrews eleven seven: By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You see, what we see here is that Noah was righteous not because of his actions, but because of his response of faith. I gotta take a drink here for just a second. So, what is faith? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It is definitely not merely familiarity because familiarity does not lead to reverent fear like Noah had. When we're overly familiar with something or someone, we usually begin to take it for granted. So faith must be something other than becoming familiar with God just because you grew up in a Christian household and gone to church your whole life. So let's look into that chapter. Hebrews 11, 1 to 3 says this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old, read like Noah, received their condemnation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Y'all, this passage says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And it is by faith that people of old, like Noah, received their commendation. So even though it may seem like God picked out the most righteous dude in the mountains at the time and trusted him to build a giant ark, that is not the case. Noah's not commended for his righteousness. This passage says that Noah was commended for his faith. And this has always been the way that people become righteous. God grants righteousness to us as a gift to all who believe and respond in faith to the good news of the gospel you see, another way to think about it is that faith is giving an unconditional, unqualified yes to God. I've heard it described as uh, putting on a parachute that's just been packed by God and jumping out of a plane. You don't have to do anything but trust that God packed that parachute rightly and pulled the ripcord, responding to God in that time. 
I wonder, Harvest City, is that our posture toward God? Do we have our yes on the table with God? If God asked you to build some boat in the middle of a place where there was no need for boats, would you in reverent fear construct a boat for you or your family? You see, Noah is a walking, talking illustration for us of what faith looks like played out in someone's life. Seriously, he is in the hall of faith. It's like the hall of fame, okay, except for faith. Noah's faith stood the test of ridicule. Noah built a giant boat in the middle of the mountains because God told him a flood was coming. Can you even imagine a greater test of ridicule than this one? Can you imagine the things that people must have said to him and the jokes that people told about him behind closed doors and sometimes maybe openly in his faith, face? But Noah's faith didn't just stand the test of ridicule. Noah's faith stood the test of endurance as well. Harvest City, faith is not just the initial yes. It's the follow through that reveals if you really had faith in the first place. Noah spent almost 100 years building a 500-foot boat in a place where nobody else even had use for a fishing boat. His faith got put into action. His faith endured. You see, many of us have been baptized and have spoken about our faith in Jesus at one point in time publicly. But the question spurred on by Noah's faith should be, does your life today speak just as loudly as your mouth once did at the day of your baptism? Is your faith enduring in that way? Because true faith stands the test of endurance. And the third thing that Noah's faith did is Noah's faith stood the test of his personal limited understanding. See, God is an infinite God, and we are finite people, and oftentimes our understanding is limited when it comes to him and his promises. When the time came for these animals to all climb up into the boat and wait for the water to come up out of the earth and for water to come down in the form of rain, there was much that was surely beyond Noah's understanding, but that didn't stop him. There was surely supernatural stuff going on there. One of my biggest questions with this whole deal is how in the heck did Noah trust God enough to build this thing according to his plans when Noah surely had scoured the plans that God had for this three-level, 500-foot-long boat, and he knew that there was no way to close that door after everybody got in the boat. You see, Scripture says that God closed the door behind them from the outside. They didn't have a chain on that door. Noah couldn't pull it up from the inside or a rope or something like that. God closed that door up, and I'm guessing sealed it up somehow because otherwise that boat might not have floated so well after it got closed up that way. But that didn't stop Noah from pushing forward. He obeyed God, and when the time came, Scripture says, God, the Lord, shut them in. And when the time finally came after the ark had been built, God said, it's time to load up all the animals in the boat. They somehow got in there, right? God closes the door for them. And once the door was closed, fountains above and below the earth were opened up. Water was coming out from every which way. And soon enough, a flood covered even the highest known mountains by over 45 feet. And those waters remained on the face of the earth for five months, y'all. 
every living thing on the face of the earth that was not in the ark drowned. But eventually, the floodwaters recede and Noah's, Noah hops out to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on an altar. And that's when we come to this reboot. That's the third word that we're going to use this morning to get through this story. The reboot starts off in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That might sound um, uh, a little bit like something we've already heard, right? From Genesis chapter 1 when God was speaking to Adam. You see, the first thing that we need to notice here after the reboot are the parallels between Adam and Noah because this isn't the only one. Noah is indeed like the second Adam. Think about this with me. Both of them are said to be created in the image of God. Both of them are said to walk with God. Both exercise dominion over animals in obedience to God. Both are commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, as we see here in Genesis 9.1. Both work the ground. And both sin in connection with food. Adam by eating and Noah by drinking. And the list goes on, but it's also important for us to notice what was distinct with this reboot. There's a lot of parallels, but there's also some clear distinctions. When God decided to wipe the slate clean and start over, there are two truths he decided to share with Noah that were not specifically recorded this way in the creation narrative. So we need to notice the distinctions as well. First is the outstanding value placed on human life. Look at Genesis 9, 5, and 6. It says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Don't get me wrong. I know that Genesis 1, 26 and 27 speaks of humans being created in the image of God, but nothing was written in Genesis 1 and 2 about the implications of this truth and how we live toward one another. This time around, however, uh, after uh, you know, uh, Cain and Abel and the, the murder that came about there and probably the many that came about as a result of this only evil all the time kind of sin... God starts to get into the implications of this very important truth. Church, how do you determine the value of something? Have you thought about that? How do you determine the value of something? Well, simply put, the value of a thing is determined by the price someone is willing to pay for it. And in this text, one of the things that we learn is that there is nothing on earth that can compare to the value of human life. God says that the only thing equal to human life on earth is another human life. I don't have any desire to get into a conversation this morning about the death penalty, although some form of it is probably advocated here, but I do want to see the value. I want us to see the outstanding value of human life above all the rest of creation that God places on it. Let's not mince our words here, Harvest City. God is pro-life in many more senses of that phrase than what we use it for in our political propaganda. Right here in Genesis 9, God makes it very clear 
that every human, regardless of their age, regardless of their gender, regardless of their race, ethnicity, ability, talents, intelligence, economic status, etc., bears his image and he is willing to pay the highest price for us. Now think about the implications of this truth with me for a minute. Rather than running straight to the issue that most of our minds went to when I said the phrase pro-life, I want us to see that there are other issues that share this same root. God places such an incredibly outstanding value on human life that it affects how we act toward the poor, the elderly, the invalid, the immigrant. Yes, unborn babies and anyone else that you might categorize as the least of these. Harvest City, the truth is that all people made in the image of God deserve to be loved in the same way that God loves us. And if we are spending our time arguing about what makes them a person, then we are most likely on the wrong side of the argument. The most horrible periods in all of history have come when a group of people created in in the image of God have been regarded as less than human. This is what happened at the Holocaust, isn't it? An educated German society went along with the atrocities of that day because they regarded Jews as less than human. This is what happened in our country's history as well. The founding fathers of our country, as right as they were about some of the things they wrote in the Constitution, were dead wrong on one huge thing. They regarded those enslaved as less than human. You see, instead of asking the seemingly obvious question about what makes a human a human, maybe we should be asking ourselves who in our society is being regarded as fully human, as less than fully human, and what can I do to show them the love of God? If it is the unborn, who, by the way, bear the image of God, then we must all be willing to sacrifice for them. And we cannot forget the incredibly difficult circumstances that many of the moms are in that are considering abortion. We need to be willing to sacrificially love them and bear their burden with them as well. If it is, uh, say, for example, a kid uh, with an extra chromosome, then we need to be willing to go the extra mile for them the way that Katie Rivera does. We need to advocate for our homies with an extra chromie and change the way that other people see these kids so that the next time a mom is tempted to see her baby as less than human because of a diagnosis, she doesn't give in. Harvest City, every human being is created in the image of God and must be treated as such. This is not an issue we can jump on one side of the fence or another about. As Christians, we must treat unborn babies as humans created in the image of God just as much as we treat the girl who is considering or who has already had an abortion as created in the image of God. Refugees uh, need to be, as Christians, we must treat refugees as humans created in the image of God just as much as we treat native Iowans as humans who are created in the image of God. As Christians, we must treat black people and brown people and white people and all kinds of people as humans created in the image of God just as much as we treat our own kin as humans created in the image of God. For those of you that are Yellowstones fans out there, we must treat Native Americans as if they were created in the image of God just as much as we treat cowboys like they're created in the image of God. Humans have an outstanding value, and God shows us that right here 
in this text. But the other thing he shows us is that God has a great care for all of creation. We see that in the next few verses. Look at in chapter 9, verses 8 to 12. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature, every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Notice the repetition here. God establishes his covenant with who? Yeah, surely Noah and his offspring, but it says also here, and every living creature. And God repeats himself that this covenant is between God, Noah, and every living creature again in verse 12. As we just heard, God certainly loves humans the most, but he also cares for all of creation. And one theologian I read this week pointed out that God never calls anyone into a covenant relationship unless it's a saving relationship. Which should make us ask, what is God saving the earth from? Well, Genesis 8, 20 to 22 tells us that God's saving the earth from human sin. Romans 8.19 speaks of the same thing. It says that creation waits eagerly. It groans to be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Church, nature has been waiting for quite some time to be restored to its ultimate purpose. Harvest City, God has a purpose for every created thing, and it is to declare his glory. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. But the truth is, human sin corrupts that. That's part of what grieved God. That's part of why God had a broken heart. And that means that one of our jobs as we rule over and steward the earth, is to ensure that the creation, all of creation, reflects the glory of God the way it was meant to. As Christians, we should be a people who take responsibility and take care of every aspect of God's creation. This world isn't just trash that's going to be burned up one day. No, the refining fire that Scripture speaks of isn't to burn up the earth, but it's to renew the earth. This creation can't wait for us to stop sinning so that it can become more fully what it was created to be. You see, our sin is having an effect to the ends of the earth, to every part of God's creation. But part of the restoring work God wants to do is by placing us in this earth as a redeemed people to live in a way that takes responsibility and care for every aspect of his creation. And that leads us uh, to the last word, not just reboot, but failure. Look at this in Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 to 21 with me. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
Neither will I ever again strike down every living, cre living creature as I have done. What's this verse even saying here, right? It kind of gets us tripped up in our words. You see, in our performance-based mindsets, what we expect God to say is something like, I'm not going to destroy the earth again because I'm confident that humans will do much better this next time around. But that's actually not true at all. So instead, God says, I know man is still evil. Even this family I saved on the ark, so I won't flood the earth again. Instead, I will seek another solution. And if you needed any other hints that man is still evil, evil after the flood, all you have to do is read to the end of chapter 9, because by the end of chapter 9, Noah grows a vineyard, makes some wine, drinks way too much of said homemade wine, and gets so drunk that he's found wandering around naked in the village. Church, if this reboot worked, why would this story include this great man of faith being so drunk that he's wandering around naked? I propose to you this morning that this drunken story is in the Bible to remind us that sin is still present even after the flood. And if sin is still here, then God must be using this story to point to a whole new kind of salvation. And that points us right to the one who's the main point of this whole story. Harvest City, Jesus is the true and better Noah. See it in Genesis 9, 12 to 15. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you, me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Check it out. The Jesus Storybook Bible says it like this. The first thing Noah did after getting off the ark was to thank God for rescuing them, just as he had promised. And the first thing God did was make another promise. I won't destroy the world again. And like a warrior who puts away his bow and arrow at the end of a great battle, God said, see, I have hung up my bow in the clouds. And there in the clouds, just where the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light. And then the story ends like this. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. Church, the implication here is quite obvious. Sally Lloyd-Jones, the talented author of the Jesus Storybook Bible, is implying the same thing that Charles Spurgeon once did back in the day. She's implying that God won't accomplish ultimate salvation by shooting the arrows of wrath into men any longer. In fact, that the, the one to take the next shot from God's war bow would not have their address here on earth, but the person on the receiving end of God's arrows of wrath the next time around would be one whose permanent address is in heaven. That's why it's pointed that way. Harvest City, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the God-man whose permanent address has always been in heaven with the Father and the Spirit, got himself a temporary address here on earth the way that many college students get a temporary address here in Iowa City. And while he was here, 
He lived a perfect life that none of us could live. Unlike the first Adam and the second Adam, Noah, and every other one of us who came after them, he was tempted in every way during his time here on earth, but was without sin. And then right at the end of his time at at his temporary address, he stood in our place and took the shot from God's war bow that each and every one of us deserved because of our sin. Jesus was crucified not because of any sin of his own. Rather, he was punished as our sacrificial substitute. And then three days later, he rose from the grave to conquer death, sin, and Satan and head back to his permanent address in heaven where he will reside until one day he comes back to make all things new and make this place his new permanent address. Family, Jesus Christ is the true and better Noah. Here it is. Jesus brings salvation like the ark Noah built. You see, Jesus delivers all who trust in him from judgment, just as the ark did for Noah. While a wooden ark delivered Noah from physical death, a wooden cross delivers us from spiritual death. Just as Noah obeyed God by climbing onto a boat to save a few, Jesus obeyed his father by climbing onto a cross to save many. Jesus succeeds where Noah and Adam failed. Jesus Christ became the man Adam chose not to be and the man Noah never could be. You see, Adam was born without, without sin but chose to sin. Noah was born into sin and could never escape it. But instead of temporarily obeying his father only to succumb to failure, Jesus obeyed completely so he could be authorized to judge sin and crush Satan. And lastly, Jesus ensures the end of judgment. Family, the flood is a precursor to the final judgment facing all of humanity, yet it's laced with promises of grace because the flood was a part of a bigger story that includes promises of final restoration and salvation. Even in washing most of humanity away, God proved faithful. He spared one family who would lead to the birth of the Savior, History was being pushed toward a better day, a day when the earth will be restored. Creation will no longer groan in chaos. It will be restored, and a new Adam will lead a redeemed humanity to rule over it. If you've lived in Iowa City for very long, then you know floods suck. They are not pleasant. They destroy property. Worse, they take lives. They leave huge amounts of destruction in their wake. Floods remind us that nature is in disarray and that things aren't as they should be. Theologically, floods are illustrations of the conflict that still exists between God and man outside of Christ. Nevertheless, we're assured that when Christ returns, there will be no more tears, no more heartbreak, and no more funerals. Creation will be renewed, and those who took refuge in the ultimate ark, Jesus Christ, will embark into an eternity with God. Church, the question for each one of us this morning is, have you, by faith, taken refuge in the ultimate ark, Jesus Christ, to be saved from final judgment? Because the final judgment is coming just as sure as a flood was coming to Noah when he in reverent fear constructed an ark to save his family. 
And the other question standing before each one of us this morning is this. Do you tell others about the security that you have in Jesus in the face of the coming judgment? You see, our role is much like Noah's and that we are to be telling people there's a flood coming. There's a judgment coming. Take refuge in Jesus. Find security in Jesus. He is the only one that can save us. Harvey City, I'm convinced that if we keep digging into God's word and we keep asking the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see him in these stories, then we will also keep experiencing God in some fresh new ways. Even if some of these stories we're reading and looking at on Sunday mornings are familiar, the God that we see in the Bible is not familiar at all. His ways are so much higher than our ways. He is the creator and sustainer of the entire world. And God has given us a family, a familiar rhythm to become the true and better Noah, or to remember the true and better Noah as well. But we must fight not to let it become too familiar, right? Luke 22 tells us that he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The gluten-free bread and the uh, white grape juice or red wine that's set out for you this morning is meant to remind us of the good news of the gospel. The body of Jesus broken for us and the blood of Jesus shed for us remind us of what he has done to save us from our sin and to save us one day from final judgment. When we taste the bread, we are reminded of the finished work that Jesus has done for us on the cross. As Christians, we find our identity in what he has done and that reminds us that there is nothing we could ever do to cause God to love us any more than he already does in Jesus Christ. And when we taste the wine or the juice, we are reminded of the blood of Jesus poured out for us, and that taste should remind us of the sweet taste of God's grace toward us in Christ. It's not because of anything we've done, but because of God's grace toward us that we can rest in Jesus. We are in his favor, not because we deserve it, but because of his grace toward us. So let's respond to the good news of the gospel together this morning. Here at Harvest City, the communion tables for those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If that's you, we invite you to approach the table up the center aisle, receive the elements, and then return to your seats through the outside aisles. If you've yet to repent of your sin and believe the good news of the gospel, then we encourage you to take this time remaining seated to reflect on the person of Jesus Christ and all that the Lord's Supper means. And during these last two songs, we'll have a prayer station available in the back for anybody who needs just a space to pour out your heart to God. We'd encourage you to take some time, these last two songs, to give it all to him and head, head to the back if you need somebody to help you with that. You see, all of us are encouraged to sing from the bottom of our hearts at the top of our lungs. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for leading us and guiding us through your word this morning. Thank you for even making this possible um, through technology uh, that, um, that we'd be able to be in the word together this morning. Thank you for the favor that you showed Noah. 
And thank you even more for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to be the true and better Noah. That through faith in you, that we could be saved from the final judgment. Jesus, you endured so much so that we could be saved through you. It's in you this morning that we place our hope and our trust. In Jesus' name, amen.